Thank you, Seth and Julie. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, as we pick up our study through this Gospel. Ashley Velu and David Mellon were a young couple looking to get married. Since they didn't have a church family where they lived in Yarmouth, they decided to look online to find a justice of the peace that could do the job. After doing some research, they found a man by the name of James Stern. He had a lot of good reviews and things looked great, so they made all the arrangements and he officiated their ceremony. But two weeks after the wedding, they discovered that everything was not quite right. Two of the bridesmaids reported irregular and unauthorized charges on their credit cards. And after the credit card companies and the police began to investigate, they discovered that James Stern was the guilty party. In fact, they began to discover some other things. He really wasn't even a justice of the peace. He had no authority whatsoever to officiate that ceremony. So obviously their wedding vows were considered null and void at that time. A person they believed to have authority really had none. It is the issue of spiritual authority that comes to the forefront in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. I want you to keep in mind the flow of the narrative up to this point. In John chapter 9, a miracle is recorded. Jesus has healed a blind man, blind since birth. The question was put forth, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This man is blind so that the glory of God will be revealed. Well, of course, after the miracle is done, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who were looked to to give spiritual authority, rejected the miracle. They questioned everyone involved. They questioned the man. They questioned the neighbors. They questioned the parents. Finally, the man refuses to give in to their accusations that he really wasn't blind. And they refuse to believe that Jesus committed this miracle. So they expel this man who was once blind from the temple. He's excommunicated, cast out. We see toward the end of chapter 9 where Jesus seeks him out. And Jesus reveals who he is, that he is the Messiah. Now, in the aftermath of this, Jesus continues a discussion with the Pharisees and all who are listening. He begins to teach about who he is, and he does this through a parable. Now, here is the outline of verses 1 through 21. Verses 1 through 6 contains a parable that Jesus teaches to make this point about valid spiritual authority. Verses 7 through 18 records Jesus teaching what the parable means. And then verses 19 through 21 gives the response to the parable. Now as we work our way through these verses, there are four questions that I want to ask you to think through this morning because I believe these are the the application, the, the guidance and how this applies to our life. First is this, this is the crucial question. This passage should cause us to ask, Who is Jesus? That's the main point of the Gospels. It's to bring the reader, the one hearing this, to ask the question, who is this man? And asking that question, I'm not dealing with just the the biographical facts of Jesus. But who is he? Is he the Messiah? 
Is he the son of God? Or is he some charlatan pretending to be something he's not? Who is Jesus? The second question we must deal with is this. Who or what is influencing us spiritually? Now that's the primary issue that Jesus is dealing with. Is the authority we're allowing to speak into our life a legitimate spiritual authority? Jesus gives us guidelines for answering that question. Third question for application is this. How can we come to God? There's a relational component to this parable that will become evident as we work our way through it. How can we be right with God? How can we know God? Fourth issue is this. What is the nature of that relationship? See, relationships can be placed upon a continuum. There are some people that we are very close with, others that we know as acquaintances. There's a lot of people that we know. I visit Food City near my house a lot, and I've gotten to know several of the people who help bag groceries and many of the, the people who work at the, the checkout point. I know them, but then I know my family on a whole different level than I know those people at Food City. So what's the nature of a relationship with God? Those four questions should guide us through this, and we'll come back to them at the end. So let's start with the parable. Follow with me as I read verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech was you, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, I refer to verses 1 through 6 as a parable based upon what is said in verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. Same terminology used as a parable. Now, just a word about parables. Often we think of parables as morality tales or, or a lesson in ethics. Any ethical teaching is secondary to the main point of the parable. Quite frankly, a parable is a pronouncement of judgment. A parable is used to point out a need for God or where a person is falling short. It's used often to announce the judgment of God. So in teaching this, Jesus is using this parable to speak to the Pharisees to reveal that they are under the judgment of God because they are refusing to recognize Jesus. So the use of a parable should cause us to take attention and not just sit back and say, oh, well, the moral of the story is be kind or be good. The moral of the story is repent and turn to God. Now, there are two primary metaphors that are used in this parable that really Jesus uses through verse 18. The metaphors are that of a door, or to be more specific, a sheep gate. And the second metaphor is that of a shepherd. Now, he begins by talking about one who enters by the door, by the gate. In other words, if a person does not come through the right gate, that person's a thief. 
often the shepherd would lay down across the gate of the sheepfold to protect his sheep. And so Jesus is saying clearly, he is the gate. He is the one laying down in front of the entrance. And if a person tries to get to the sheep by bypassing the gate, then they are not a legitimate spiritual authority. Only one who comes in through the gate, that is through Jesus, is a legitimate spiritual authority. Joe, notice that Jesus emphasizes this by saying the sheep will listen to the one who is a legitimate authority. In fact, in verse 3, he says to him, that one who comes in, the true shepherd who comes in by the gate, by the door, which is Jesus, the sheep will hear his voice. And he calls out his sheep by name. Now look at the next phrase. And leads them out. That is a phrase that is full of meaning. It's a word that actually is based upon the exodus. In fact, this image of a doorkeeper and a shepherd fall back to two primary passages. Ezekiel chapter 34 that we'll come back later to later. And Numbers 27, 17. It's the passage from Numbers that takes our notice, our attention when we come to verse 3 where Jesus says, and leads them out. Numbers 27 records a transition that was taking place as Moses is getting ready to step down from leadership. And in Numbers 27, a, a prayer is lifted up to the Lord, a prayer that goes like this. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them. Listen to what is said next. Who shall lead them out and bring them in. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without no shepherd. In Numbers, Moses prays, Lord, send a shepherd that will lead the sheep out. Now, in the immediate context of Numbers, Joshua fulfills that. But Jesus refers to that here to show that Joshua was simply a preview of coming attractions to point to Jesus. That ultimately Jesus is the Joshua who will lead his people out. Jesus is the shepherd who will lead his people out. And this image of the Exodus is found all throughout the Gospel of John. Even as early as John 1.18 when he writes about Jesus becomes the tabernacle of God. The, the vessel in which God tabernacles or dwells with his people. The language that is used of gate and shepherd connected with the Exodus points to Jesus. As the one, the hero who rescues his people. Deep down, that's what we're longing for. You recognize that many of the myths that have developed over the past millennia, many of the stories we read today, follow basically the same plot line. You have the, the hero. You have the problem. And the hero saves the day. Deep down, we have that longing for a deliverer, that longing for a hero. Jesus is saying that he is that hero. And he comes not as a superman wearing a cape, but as a shepherd to guide his sheep. Now, the tragic thing is, is that the spiritual leaders of that day who should have recognized this didn't get it. They missed the point. So that's why in verse 7, Jesus begins the explanation. 
Verses 7 through 10, he explains the image of the door or the gate. Follow with me. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus uses an image here that's one we don't really gravitate toward, but that he is the gate. Now, clearly he's using a metaphor to communicate a truth. He is saying that he is the access point to the flock. He is the only means by getting in. Anyone who comes in another way is illegitimate, illegal. In the late 1980s, I was a student at Cleveland State Community College and had several friends that went to a lot of different schools around. And some of my friends attended the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And they told me a, a story that I'm sure was exaggerated a bit, but it makes the point about legitimate entrance and illegitimate entrance. A concert was taking place at the Roundhouse. It was a very popular, I'm not even sure who it was. It may have been the group New Edition, and those of you from the 80s know exactly who I'm talking about. It was sold out. A group of wrestlers at UTC wanted to get into the roundhouse to see this concert. It was sold out, however, but they were undaunted. They did, developed a plan. They recognized that there was a set of doors underneath the, the roundhouse that were lightly guarded, mainly by only one security guard, so they made a plan. The whole team was going to rush the door. They figured that the majority of them wouldn't get in, but one or two might. And so they decided the team as a whole is going to rush the door, and if two or three get in, that'll be good. So they carried out their plan, and it was actually successful. Many of them were arrested, but two or three actually got in. But they weren't in under the right authority. Had they been found out, they would have been removed. That is the point that Jesus is making. If someone tries to lead the sheep without recognizing Jesus, they're not true spiritual authority. In fact, he says in verse 8, reiterating what he said in the parable, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The sheep would not follow them. So here's the question I point to you. What voices are shaping you spiritually? What influences are guiding you spiritually? Now, do they make much of Jesus? Now, understand what I'm saying. Not do they just sprinkle Jesus on what they're teaching. But do you hear a consistent refrain of the gospel in what they're teaching? What do they view as authority? The book of Jude warns about those who would come to speak to God's people and their only authority they referred to would be dreams and visions while ignoring the Word of God. The Scripture takes center place in that teaching. Do they hold true to the message of the gospel? Now, we can all think of outrageous examples of what happens when people are let off. One of the, that came to my mind is actually the basis for a phrase that is used frequently today. We'll hear people use the terminology of drinking the Kool-Aid. That phrase actually goes back to a tragedy that occurred in the 1970s. A 
tragedy that involved a mass suicide led by a false prophet by the name of Jim Jones. See, when he began his outreach, his church, it happened in the Midwestern part of this nation. And he would sprinkle Jesus in liberally. But the authority soon became his word, not the scripture. And the result was tragedy. Now that's a very large example, a tragic example. But I encourage you to look at the small things. It's a caution for us. Jesus and the truth of the scripture should be front and center at the spiritual authorities, the voices we allow into our lives. But now here's the good news. Along with that warning is a promise. Look to verses 9 and 10. If anyone enters by me, that is, they are legitimate, they come in by the, the true way, he will be saved. He'll go in and out of the sheepfold. So you see, there's only one way into the sheepfold. Jesus mixes the imagery here. Now he's not just talking about teachers. He's talking about the sheep that would come in. There's no other way into the sheepfold except by Jesus. Jesus will echo this same truth in John 14 when he says, I am what the way, the way, no other way to the Father. And there is this promise that whoever comes in by him will be saved. When he says they'll go in and out and they will find pasture, he is speaking to this idea of being delivered and finding pasture. Their way of life will be one that is rich and fertile. The imagery of finding pasture goes back to what Cheryl quoted earlier from Psalm 23, of finding green pastures, abundant life. So Jesus presents a contrast. Come in by him, find life. Try to come in any other way, and you reveal yourself to have been deceived. The language of the thief and robber in verse 10 that comes to steal and kill and destroy is based on Ezekiel 34. Remember, that's the other passage that shapes the understanding of John 10. Ezekiel 34 begins with a warning against false prophets. In fact, in the first six verses of Ezekiel 34, there's a method of identifying false shepherds. He says false shepherds will feed themselves, slaughter the sheep, overpower the sheep by force. They'll scatter and destroy the flock. That's the imagery behind the language of verse 10. They will come to steal, to kill, and destroy. So just as Jesus reveals the false shepherds, he now points to the true shepherd. This is found in verses 11 through 18. Follow with me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd two times. In verse 11 and verse 14. Now the language that he uses is in fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, 15, listen to this. God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. God says he will be the shepherd. So understand that as Jesus draws upon this language of Ezekiel 34, he is claiming to be God. Because God said he would be the shepherd. And now Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd. This is a claim to divinity. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24 says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So you have these two things. God says, I will be their shepherd. And I will bring up the servant David. So Jesus comes as that Davidic shepherd to guide the sheep. Now, when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's not just talking about ethical qualities of kindness and compassion. Jesus certainly has those. But the word good is a unique Greek word here that refers to a model. It refers to a, a moral quality that is attractive and ideal. Jesus is saying, I am the ideal shepherd. I am what a shepherd should be. And this ideal shepherd is signified by his willingness to sacrifice. He says, a hired hand has no courage. He values his own life more than the life of the sheep because when the wolf is coming, that, that hireling is gone. But Jesus says, I not only stay with my sheep, I throw myself at the wolf and I willingly lay down my life on behalf of the sheep. Jesus is kind and compassionate. But what makes him the good shepherd is his willingness to lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. And notice, he says that he does this willingly. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now when he says, for this reason the Father loves me, he's talking about because he is walking in relationship with God and his love relationship with God is demonstrated in his obedience. So he says, I'm laying down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to do this. And I have the authority to take it up again. It's a reminder that Jesus had the power to stop the cross. Like the old hymn says, he could have called 10,000 angels. Jesus had the authority over life and death. And he willingly chose to die. And that death is a vicarious one. He talks about dying for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep. He takes the place of the sheep. Jesus is saying that he gives his life for his flock, that they may have abundant life. I hope you live in that reality today. That you have indeed confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The response is what is recorded in verses 19 through 21. There was division among the Jews. You recognize some of them said he has a demon. He's insane. They recognized he was claiming to be God. 
that he was claiming to have the authority over life and death. But the tension came about in verse 21. These are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I hope you will wrestle with this truth just like the Pharisees are. I gave you four questions. I want to walk back through them briefly before we sing together again. Who is Jesus? Based on John 10, 1 through 21, he is the shepherd predicted in Ezekiel 34. He is God in the flesh who died on behalf of his flock. I ask you this morning, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? I would ask you the same question Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? The Gospels are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Who or what's influencing you spiritually? That's a question you have to answer. What role does the Scripture take in your spiritual formation? It doesn't matter whether you are 6 or 60. We are all growing spiritually or we are declining spiritually. What's your spiritual diet like? How can we come to God where Jesus made that clear? He's the gate. Only through faith in Christ. And what is the nature of that relationship? It's intimate. Jesus drew a comparison. He says, just as I know my Father and we are, are in relationship, He says, in that same manner, I will know the sheep and the sheep will hear my voice. This is an intimate relationship. This is not distant, but up close. I hope you'll ponder these things this week. Come back to these questions and ask them again. I want to lead us in a prayer right now, and then Mr. Gibson's going to come, he and Julie, and going to lead us in that familiar hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and let this be a time where we come together and reflect on these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus as the Good Shepherd. We don't deserve such a shepherd. Father, like the scripture says, we like sheep have gone astray, Lord. We are prone to wander off. But Lord, you bring us back. Thank you for that, Father. And I pray that we will take the words of this next hymn seriously and turn our eyes upon Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.